0: If you have a copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to look with me in the book of Judges. This morning we're going to be looking at Judges 2 and 3. I'm only going to read an excerpt from uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you might want to keep it open because I'm going to refer to verses that I'm not going to read. So, before I do that, I wanted to say just a, a couple um, preliminary things. Uh, one is, you might remember last year we did a joint service on Monday, Thursday with Emmanuel Church. And we're going to do that again this year. So, that'll be the 6th of April. So, we'll be looking for details about that. And we're going to host our, this year. We're going to host at our building. And so, they'll be coming here. So, I hope you can look forward to that and meet some new people if you haven't met them before and celebrate communion together. Um, in advance of that, we're going to be doing a pulpit swap. Now y'all might remember Matt and Blake because they've both preached here multiple times, Um, but I've never, or Chad has never preached over there. And so they want one of us to go over there next week. And so we're going to do a pulpit swap. So, um, and let's see, I think that's it. So just know that on the front end about what's upcoming with the Monday, Thursday and Pulpit Swap. Um, Now let's get into Judges a little bit more. Remember that this whole year we're thinking about the Bible as a four-part story. Um, If you haven't been raised in understanding the Bible as a four-part story, if you have had some alternative view of the Bible, then my hunch is that has left you as if you feel as though your life, spiritually speaking, is like you're on a treadmill. That you're constantly coming to the scripture, hoping to hear about what you need to do to make yourself better, uh, how you can fix yourself, how you can do what's good and stay away from what's bad. Um, it's, it's this constant sense of how can I please God and constantly coming to the scripture to say, as if the scripture is going to tell you this is what you need to do to fix yourself and please God. And it's just probably been exhausting to you. That's my hunch. And What it also leads to, not only being exhausting, is that you just feel burnout. Um, And at the end of the day, you've been exposed to a uh, really Americanized, individualized version of Christianity that's a lot about just more self-help. But to come to the Bible and understand that the Bible is a four-part story, that you can understand the Bible is written to give us reality in four parts, creation, rebellion, Redemption and consummation. You might realize the more you get into understanding the Bible's a four part story, that instead of being exhausted, you can actually find deep joy and like hope and encouragement to live because our lives can now be centered not on self, but on God and who He is. Because after all, this four part story is God's story. The Bible is God's book, it's what He says. So, That's what we're going to continue to look at this morning. That's what we're going to continue to think about this morning. And hopefully you will find joy and hope and peace as we understand the God of the Scriptures. So listen to this, Judges chapter 2, I'll read some excerpts from this chapter and chapter 3. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Boshim, and he said, "'I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers.'" I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of the place Boshim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunders who had plundered them. And he sold them into the land of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the land of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And in chapter 3, now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. Let's pray together. Lord, we are here as your people. We are here to learn from you. We are here so that you would deal with our lives. We are here, Holy Spirit, so that you would remind us again, so we can start the week remembering that your word, O Lord, is truth, that we might understand who we are, that we might come to grips with that, so that you, Holy Spirit, would show us Christ. Lord Jesus, we want to see you in this passage. We want to see you in the scriptures. We want you in our lives. So we ask, Lord, that you would do this and whatever else you intend to do. Have your way with us, that you might get all glory, now and forever, amen. Recently, I've been watching this series on Netflix called Match Point. What it does is it follows professional tennis players in their lives as they're playing the big matches all across the country and the world. Now, whether you like sports or not, it doesn't really matter. If you do like sports, there are other things that are like this, whether it's um, hard knocks or there's a golf one that's out. But what they do is they get you to understand that if you want to get into understanding professional athletes, it's way more than wins and losses. If you really want to understand what's going on, it's way more than trophies and prize money. The, this show in particular gets us, well, at least me, and I would encourage you to watch it if that interests you at all, it gives you an inside look at the lives of these people so that you know what's going on in their mind and you know what's happening in their lives as they are about to play in these tournaments where there's all kinds of pressure and on and on and on. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. I want you to understand that Judges 2 is a summary of the entire book, of the entire book, and what Judges 2 is giving us is far more than just wins and losses, far more than just the scoreboard, far more than just trophies or what you lose, way, way more than that. God is actually inviting us in He's giving us an inside look. He's giving us a behind-the-scenes glimpse of what's actually happening at a deeper level than just wins and losses. And I really want to press this home to you because here's how God could summarize the Bible, and this may be how you've heard it before. This is a, a simplistic way to say it. God's told you what to do. You didn't do it. Now he's telling you this. Then he says go and do it. And if that's the way that you've heard the Bible, if that's the way you think when you come to hear sermons, you're missing out, you're missing out. Because God is always inviting us way deeper than that. Because if that's the way we view the Bible, God says this, we haven't done it, he tells us this, then he says go do it. If that's all you hear, you'll never hear redemption. You'll never understand how you really work and what's actually going on inside of you. And you'll never understand who God is. You'll just think of him as someone that just gives you marching orders and then tells you you haven't done them and then gives you some new ones and then says, go do it. And he's inviting us into something so much more, so much more deep. In other words, he's saying, will y'all stop being so shallow? He's inviting us to, to the inside story. So this morning as we think about Judges two and three, here's what God is inviting us into. He's inviting us to see how our own heart works and he's inviting us to see how he works. Those are the two stops we're making on the journey this morning. We're gonna see how our heart works and we're gonna see how God works, you got me? And remember, God's inviting you in. He's saying I want you to take a real deep look at your life rather than just thinking about your behavior. So let's start here. This is how our heart works. Let's start by collecting some data. So if you go back and read these chapters, let me lay out the data that you would derive from these chapters. If you look at verse 16 through 19 of chapter 2, which I read, it gives you the cycle. This is the cycle that was repeated, verse 16 through 19, in every chapter of this book. Cycle after cycle. This is what happens all the time. Now let's get some more particulars. If you look in chapter 2, in verse 3, you'll find this. Here's a data point. I'm going to list a bunch of these for you. God tells his people not to make a covenant, but they didn't obey. In other words, a data point, God's people made arrangements with people of the land that they weren't supposed to. That's verse 3. If you look at verse 10, it tells you that they provoked God. Nope, sorry, that's a later verse. Verse 10, they didn't know God. They didn't know God. The next generation didn't know God. Verse 12, they provoked God. Verse 13 tells that they served the Baal and the Ashtaroths. If you look in verse 17, God's people whored themselves out after other gods. Verse 18, another data point, his people groaned. Verse 19, they were stubborn. That's all the data that God's given us. If we want to understand our own hearts, he wants us to understand that there's cycles that happen in our lives. He wants us to understand that oftentimes we don't follow him and provoke him. Sometimes we act as if he doesn't even exist. Other times we just flat out whore ourselves out for whatever and whoever we think will get us what we want. And then that leads oftentimes to groaning and complaining. And then on top of that, we are so stubborn. So let's try to put that in a story format, so it doesn't just come across as a checklist. So when God moved his people into the land, remember when they crossed the Jordan? He moved them into the land, and you can read chapter 1. What you will find there is this refrain, particularly at the end of chapter 1 of Judges. They did not drive out. They did not drive out. God's people brought, him into the, brought his people into the land, and they didn't do what they were supposed to do. As a matter of fact, they started mixing their lives with whatever was going on ideologically around them. Remember, we're turning this into a story. So they're in the promised land, they're serving God, they, they have a high regard for God. When it says that they didn't know God, it wasn't that they didn't know about God. They visited the stone monument all the time. They heard the stories from dad and granddad and mom and grandma about the, what God had done to bring them into the promised land. But what they knew about God had no weight on their lives. So that they were serving God in part, but they were mixing that with everything that was going on around them. In other words, they started thinking about this. Well, God wants me to work this way, but the culture that I live in says, this is how you really get by. God wants us to do this with our lives and serve him, but yet here's the place that we live. They have a different way of saying, this is the good life. So we start adapting to what God says, plus this is what other people say is a really good life. So we start mixing them. If you continue to read what you'll find at the end of verse 6 of chapter 3, that God's people even ended up mixing to the point of marrying those who were not of the same faith. Which means that all the big questions of life were answered differently. God's people were mixing. They didn't just enter the land and not do what God said. It was so much deeper than that. They honored God with their lips at times, but yet their hearts were working such that they were adapting the philosophy of where they were into what they thought of God, such that marrying someone who didn't have the same faith was fine. If you read the book on and on, they even adopted a different sexual ethic, so that they weren't living by the way God had created them and established all the way back in Genesis one and two. So that in every phase of their lives, they could give lip service to God a little bit, but because of what they were mixing with it, they didn't look very distinct. They weren't acknowledging that God owned everything about them, that they totally belonged to God. So that means that this is the interpretation. God says, well, you're living in this cycle, and what happens in your life is that you have said that you love me, but with your life, through the ways in which you're interpreting your life, through the ways in which you're arriving at making decisions, you're not really giving ultimate credit to what I say. You're taking a little bit from me, God says, and then you're borrowing from others so that you can live the life that you think that you want to. Yes, you're kind of listening to me, but in a lot of ways, you're not. And that means that you get in this cycle so that when you start following other ways, you end up being really frustrated. You end up being oppressed. You end up being distraught Things aren't making sense. Things aren't working out. You're having marital problems. You're having issues with this and issues with the way you look at your job, the way you're trying to make money and, and gather resources for, resources for yourself. And it isn't working. And you would groan and cry out to God. And then what would God do? He would send a judge. And when God would send a judge, a judge would come in and he would help rescue them. God would rescue his people through the judge. And they would have deliverance and they would have rest. And there would be time in their lives in which they thought, yes, Lord, yes. Lord, we're so sorry. Thank you for graciously pursuing us and bringing us back and hitting reset in our lives. But then the judge would die. And what would happen? We would go back through the cycle again and again. God is saying, this is how your heart works. Now, let's make sure we apply this and bring this all the way into our lives. Remember, Christianity is not true because it feels good. Christianity is true because it's the only thing left standing when you're living in the wilderness. So let's try to bring this application of this cycle and this data into our own lives so we can understand ourselves and in particular, understand our hearts even better. So I got two questions in thinking about how this applies to us. Here's question number one. Are you willing to do whatever God says you need to do in every area of your life? You wanna know how to determine and do some diagnostics on your own heart? Think about that question. Are you willing to do whatever God says should be done or needs to be done in every area of your life? Break that down into your time. Break that down into resources. Break that down into your career, your ambitions. Break that down into your job. Break that down into your relationships. Are you willing to do whatever God says about those things in your life? Let's go even further. Let's think about it, let's think about time. God has created you to work and to rest. So, my hunch is there's some of you here that might struggle with being lazy and struggling to work. Friend, I need you to know God's created you to work. He's He's gifted you with abilities and skills so that you can work. So if you struggle with laziness, are you willing for God to speak into that? And there may be some of you here who are workaholics, who overwork, and it's cost you things with your family. It's cost you maybe your own personal health. Are you willing to recognize that God has said that you were made to work and to rest? Do you have any rest in your life? Because if you don't, you will break down. I will break down. It has happened in my own life before. I have had to intentionally rest for a period of time. And I'm being very transparent with you. The elders know about this. Several years ago, I had to slow down and stop for a while because I was all out of whack. Do you know what it's like to overwork and not have any rest in your life? Are are you willing for God to speak into your work, either encouraging you to do it or saying, hey, can you say no? Do you have rest? Will you build rest into your life? What about your resources? Can you hear God say that he wants his people to give 10% of their income to his church? Because it's a way that God's people declare that they're living by faith. That they don't need everything that they earn. They give a portion of it back to God. Why? Because God owns it all. And so by giving back 10%, it's an act of faith. To say, Lord, you have given me everything that I need to make it. And I'm going to show that by living on 90% of what you have given me. Are you willing to receive what God says about your resources? Even all the way down to your desires. Are you willing to hear what God says about your desires? And I'm talking about the deepest desires that you have. Do you realize that there are some desires that you may have that are something you've got to figure out how to fight against for your whole life? That part of the effect of rebelling against God is that not only do we rebel against him and each other, not only are we broken, not only are we sinful, that extends all the way down to our desires. That we have desires that are out of accord with what God says. And by his grace, we have to commit to fighting against those desires. Are you willing to hear what God says about every aspect of your life. Because the reality is if you're not listening to God, you're listening to someone else. It's not a matter of obedience or not, it's a matter of who you are obeying. So if you want to understand where you are in the cycle, think all the way down. Think all the way down into your heart about are you willing to hear what God says about everything in your life? Because if there's some area where you're not following what he says, it means you're listening to something else, someone else, or your own thoughts about the topic, subject, desire, whatever it is. And here's the second question. Are you willing to receive whatever he sends? into your life? I'm not telling you I like these questions, okay? But if you wanna understand the cycle, if you wanna see that God is inviting you into understanding your own heart, you have to think about whether or not you're willing to follow what he says in every area of your life and whether or not you're willing to receive everything that he sends. Because if there's something that comes into your life that you didn't ask for that you don't want him to bring into your life and he does what are you going to do you going to cut and run where are you going to go i've experienced this too where am i going to go there are things that have been brought into my life that i don't like but i'm also learning where else can i go Lord Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Where else can I go? If there's there's something that God can bring into your life that you don't want, it might mean that you're just clinging onto God for certain results. And if he brings a result into your life that you don't necessarily want, it might mean that you aren't loving God for God but it might mean that you're loving God for what you think he can give you, what you can get. This is how our heart works. God is showing us all of these things so that we can know, oh, he's talking about us too. And that leads us to understand how God works. Now there are three of these, and I will go ahead and tell you I'm not sure I like any of these. I'll just tell you that. I'm I'm being completely honest with you. But I am learning to be thankful for them. I'm learning that. God is slowly moving me along. This is how God works. Here's number one. God is always going deeper in our lives. Always. When you go back and read the first five verses of chapter 2, do you see the angel of the Lord comes to God's people? The angel of the Lord is a a quick kind of cryptic way to say this is the second person person of the Trinity incarnate, pre-incarnate, excuse me. This is the second person of the Trinity pursuing God's people. Here the angel of the Lord comes to God's people. Look back at verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. Look at what he does He comes to them and he says to them, look, God has been so faithful to you. He has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Do you remember when we talked about that? That our God is so gracious, he sees that we can't save ourselves. And he hears our groanings and he hears our crying out. And he comes and he saves us. And he brings us out of captivity. And he is reminding his people of that. Do you see how how gracious I have been? You have experienced it. And then he quotes to them from Deuteronomy as if to say to them, God's word is true. When he comes to his people, he says, this is who I am, this is what I've done, and this is what I've said to you. He is pursuing his people. There is nothing new in these chapters. God is driving the truth deeper into their lives so that when they recognize that their heart is prone toward idolatry, That we are prone to mix God plus another ideology in our lives? That we can remember, oh, God is the one who saves. God is the one who gives us his word and then sees it through. He's always going deeper. He's not necessarily bringing some new truth He's taking what you have heard and what you have known and pushing it down further into our lives through our experiences, through our rebellion, through following after other things. God doesn't leave us alone. Here's number two. Anger is loving if you look back at verse 12 and verse 14 and verse 20, you'll see that God's people provoked him to anger. His wrath was kindled against them. Remember reading that? Now, it might be really hard for you to hear this. It might be really hard for you to hear that anger is loving, especially if you have grown up in a situation in which anger was always misrepresented and always misused. And if you grew up that way, that's not what God is talking about here. It also might be really hard for you to hear that anger is loving if you grew up in a situation in which no one ever told you no and then carried through with it. If you were one of those kids that grew up in a house where you knew that mom and dad said no, but oh, you could always outweigh them. And you knew what you could, you knew that if they told you no, but you went and did this, that you could break them down, or you knew you could just ramp up, and you could break down your parents. Sound familiar? If you've never had anyone tell you no and then carry through with it, this may sound really really difficult, and it will be because it's not an anger. It's not an anger that you've known before. This is the type of anger in which. A parent sees their child doing something that is destroying themselves and it grieves them and makes them angry at what is happening to their child. That's the kind of anger that this is describing. In other words, If you had a son or a daughter or a parent or a close, a family member, an uncle, a friend, if you had someone that you deeply loved and they were involved in an abusive relationship with drugs and if you thought to yourself, "Eh, oh well, that's not loving. But if you saw someone that you love was being destroyed by something, You would think, no, no. And you would be so upset about that because you could tell that they were destroying themselves. That is what God is talking about here, that he sees his people and what they're doing, and it causes anger within him because he loves them. And that's why throughout the whole chapter, he's continuing to talk with them. He doesn't run the other direction. He doesn't stop. He doesn't say, well, I did this before. But no, no, he's continuing to pursue them. He's continuing to remind them of his grace. He's continuing to remind them of what he says. He's continuing to talk with them and pursue them and win them back. That's the kind of anger that we see here. How do you like that kind of anger? A God that's so committed that he's not going to let us go. And he can see what's happening. And it angers him that we're destroying ourselves. And he says, oh, you're gonna have to take on me now because I love you. And I'm gonna tell you who I am. And I'm coming back over and over and over in love and in grace. Here's the third thing. Not only is, this is how God works. Not only is he always going deeper in your life. Not only is anger loving But finally, he is always pushing us toward maturity. It's not just that he's going deeper in our lives. It's not just that his anger is loving. It's that he is pushing us toward maturity, pushing us toward growth. If you read the first part of chapter 3, which we did, and even the end of chapter 2, what you'll find is these two ideas, testing and training. See, what God is doing when he brings his people into the land, what he's doing with you and me in our lives is he's testing. And remember, it's not the kind of test as to whether or not you're gonna pass or fail because guess what, we fail. That's, 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 that's the answer. It, it has nothing to do with whether you're adequate or not because guess what, you're not. I'm not, we're inadequate. That's not the kind of test. It's the test, remember, of the parent that's helping their child walk. It's the parent who's standing behind their child and puts their fingers out so the child hangs onto those fingers and is learning to take a step. It's the parent that is encouraging the child to say, Stand up. Put, put extra weight and stress on those legs and ankles and feet. Challenge those muscles in your body to develop and grow and get stronger. Challenge yourself to take a step. I'm right here with you. Let's go. Let's walk. It's that kind of testing in which God is holding us and we're holding on to him in which through all the experiences we are going through, God is stretching us and challenging us so that we will grow and become mature. And it also means that he's training us. Did you notice that in the first part of chapter three? Training us for war. Because this generation didn't know war like the, like the previous ones. You notice that training for war? God's training you for war. That's how he's getting you to grow and mature. Now, let me tell you something. Let me tell you about this war. Um, when I read this, honestly, this is one of the funniest things in this passage, okay? Just hang in there with me. If you go back and read the stories of God's people going into the land, Let me tell you what war looked like. God's people had strategies for war like this. Go to the city and march around the walls for six days. How about that for a war strategy? You like that war strategy? Someone's got missiles and uh, rocket launchers. Back in the day, they got catapults. They got uh, 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 oil that was on fire and spears. And God says, I want you to walk in circles and take the trumpet. And there are other stories in which God's people, it's like a modern day language, they got like lava lamps, okay? Like they're going to battle with these kinds of weapons. When God says, that he is doing in our lives what he's doing to test us and train us for war, it means that he's trying to get us to understand our own hearts and where we are in the cycle because we have the same cycle as his people have always had so that we will understand that the art of war is actually using his weapons. It's learning to depend on him it's learning that it doesn't matter what weapons we have it doesn't matter how large our army is it doesn't matter how sophisticated we are how smart we are how effective and efficient we are if we don't have God we have nothing And if we have God and we're going to war to battle with spiritual principalities and powers and to battle with our own heart, what we need is absolute dependence. God's people have always been outmanned, outarmed, outfunded, yada, 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 on and on and on. And God is bringing his people through challenging situations so that his people can learn dependence. So that they can learn that they can't do it on their own. Isn't that one of the hardest lessons that you've ever had to learn? That this Christian thing isn't just a "Mm, quick supernatural boost. It's a day in and day out recognition that God has said this and this is who he is and this is what I bring to the table. Lord, yeah, I like some of what you do, but I also like this other ideology. I mean, I I, I like to adopt um, your grace when it comes to my sin, but other than that, I really like the meritocracy that I'm living in right now. And I really like to view my job through a meritocracy lens. And I really like to look at other people that aren't like me and not be gracious to them. I want the meritocracy. It's adopting these ideologies that we mix them and say, Lord, well what about this? Yeah, we give lip service here, but in our lives we're drifting. And God's saying, no, you're my people. I'm gonna bring you back so that you realize in deeper ways dependence, so that you realize your weapons and the way that you make it in the world and the way that you make it in relationships is unlike everything else. The way that you make it, the way that you succeed is by grace. The way that you make it is you become more dependent on me and what I am doing And do you know how we know that God's people received this from him and didn't think to themselves, well, thank you, Lord, now I know what to do, now I can go fix it. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. What do his people do? They go back to the sacrifice. You see that? You see, God's people understood, and hopefully by grace we will too, that when God continues to pursue, it's not that He's saying, oh, well, here are your new marching orders, go and do it. God's people hear what He says, and God is so precise and He's so good in the way that He does it that when He makes a cut in our lives, He gets right to the heart and He cuts us to the heart so that if we realize, oh, I say that I love God, but. Actually, with my time, I'm not following what he says. Or actually, with my resources, I'm not following what he says. Or I'm not following him in what he says about my desires. Some of them are unwanted. I don't want them. Some of them I really do, but they're against God. When I find myself not receiving what God says, I don't immediately think to myself, I can fix this. We go back to the Sacrifice. God's people understood that they need something outside of themselves to come into their lives to change, to grow. Does that make sense? Beloved, what we need in our lives is more of God. What we need in our lives is more of His grace. What we need in, His li- in our lives is more of the gospel, it's more of the good news. It's more of how we can live from the fullness of Christ, not feeling that God is beating us down with deficit motivation, but saying, no, I've done all this for you in Jesus. Because it was the sacrifice, you see, that reminded God's people of his unconditional love. And it was the sacrifice that reminded his people of their responsibility. And the guilt that they would have for not following what he says. Beloved, the work of Jesus on the cross is where you get to see and observe the unconditional love of God. And it's the same place where you get to recognize, oh man, I'm responsible for so many things. And look at what God has done. The cross, the sacrifice, Jesus is where we go to understand that our relationship with God is really important and it really matters so that each day we are thinking about, well, what does God want here? What does God say about this? The cross, Jesus, is where we get to understand that our lives with God really matter every day. What he says really matters day in and day out. And it also means that it's through the sacrifice, it's through Jesus, that the cycles that we find ourselves in can be broken forever. And by God's grace, we can identify where we are in the cycle. And by God's grace, we can know that because of Jesus and his work on the cross and dying for us and his work in walking out of the tomb, that we can have hope to change and grow. Because if the power to change and grow doesn't come from Christ, you'll just get more exhausted and get worn out. But to bring Christ into your life and his sacrifice into your life means that you have real hope and you have real change. And growth will happen.